Uh, many years ago, when I was much younger than I am today, I was a senior in high school, and uh, it was my last track season as a high schooler, and I was a bit full of myself. Um, you know, I think I was the league champion as a junior, and I'm coming back my last year, and I'm being recruited by colleges to run track and play basketball, and, and Mike really is all that, you know. So the first meet of the season is here in town, Highland Park, right across town, and I know the field, I know who I'm running against, and this is no problem. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> no problem. You know, the gun sounds, the race begins, and of course I take an early lead, commanding lead, we might say. And I'm going through the race, the race is going swimmingly well, and you know, I'm getting towards the end of the race, and I know I'm so far ahead, gosh, why push myself, right? So I start, you know, I'm going to lope across the finish line. So I slow down over the 8th, ninth, 10th hurdles. I'm cruising across towards the finish line, right? But you see, no one told my, my friend Jim Brady from Highland Park that Mike was going to win that race. He didn't know that. He didn't know that I was supposed to win that race. So he didn't slow up. And so as Mike cruises across the finish line, Mr. Brady passes me and wins the race. And that was the first race of my senior year of high school. You know how big I felt about, about that big. And the moral to that story was starting well is good and finishing well is better. Starting well is good, finishing well is better. Uh, that same year, uh, only a couple of guys on my track team made the state meet. You know, you had to qualify to get there. So at the end of the season, I was uh, practicing by myself and my coach was having me do some over distance work. So I was running quarters instead of, I'm a sprint man. Run the whole way around the track. You know, I'm running 120 yards. So he has me run around the whole track. And one of the things he talked to me about was what he called the pain barrier. You know, if you're in athletics and you're training, you know, you get to these points where your muscles are fatigued or it's hard to breathe. You, you, you know, you just want to quit. There, there's pain there. There's physical, real pain. But I learned there by myself doing this over-distance work that I, I came to realize what he was talking about. That I could, as I worked my way around the full track, I could at the end, when my, when my legs were burning and my lungs are, are pushing and working hard, I, f I found that I could actually run the end of the race harder than I ran the beginning of the race. And that the pain barrier was like a door that I could either leave closed or I could say, no, I'm pushing through this door. I'm pushing through the pain barrier and I'm choosing not to shut down. I'm choosing to finish well. So starting well is good. Finishing well is better. That's sort of the theme this morning. We're starting a series this morning I've called Don't Quit. This is Lessons from Nehemiah. And we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through this morning and in the coming weeks. But really, it's a series that focuses on finishing well, not quitting. When we face the temptations in life that we are certain to face, about having a view of life and our participation in it and a heart and a set of attitudes in our heart that allow us to finish well. To not quit early, but to finish the race of life and the individual tasks God gives us to do those well. We'll see as we work through Nehemiah. Nehemiah faced at least six different specific challenges to the specific task he was called to in his life, which was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so he faces one temptation after another, one kind of opposition after another that he is faced with 
and he chooses to overcome. And that's what we want to get as we work through Nehemiah. This is not a verse-by-verse study through the book of Nehemiah. This is a topical study on the theme of not quitting. What does it take to finish life well? What does it take for me to pursue the jobs, the tasks, the relationships God's uniquely gifted me or called me to? What does it take to do that? In life broadly, but also specifically in those tasks and relationships each one of us will find ourselves in. Now, some of you here this morning, if you hear a message on pursuing, following through, overcoming, you you would say this morning, that's me right now. I'm challenged. I don't know how I'm going to finish something up. I don't want to finish. I want to quit. And so for you, this is a message that you'll be able to implement right away. For others of you, though, you're going to sit here this morning and say, life's going swimmingly. I really don't feel like I'm under any stress or pressure. Things are going well. And I would just say, you will need this later. It's not if, it's only when. You will need these lessons later this morning's introduction is titled a winning heart and by that we are looking at nehemiah's character at his heart attitudes at the things that were the spring if you will of his life why did he how did he respond as well as he did consistently so to those temptations that he faced he was a particular kind of man He was a person with a particular set of heart attitudes, of values, of character. He was formed and shaped. So when the temptation to quit came up, Nehemiah had a foundation that served him well. And that's what we're talking about this morning. If we don't have a foundation, proven character, a set of heart attitudes that are what God wants us to have, when the temptations to quit come along as they surely must, it's more than likely that we will fail. We will not finish the race of life. We will not complete those works of faith and love God has called us to. So when we're looking at those individual lessons in the future, guys, if you don't have the foundation, if your heart's not in the right place, don't think you're going to succeed later if you're not implementing those kinds of character qualities in yourself now, buying into uh, Nehemiah's kind of heart attitudes. Everything follows this. If we don't start here, we're not going to finish well. Winning in life for the Christian is ultimately about maintaining our faith through the last breath and completing the good works God has called us to. And let's be clear on this too. When we're talking about this, uh, big picture is, guys, that if we name Christ now, that we name Christ with our last breath too. Uh, Everything else aside, if a man gains the world and loses his soul, loses his faith in Christ, everything else is meaningless. So for sure, anything else aside, life is short or long, hard or easy, we're talking about holding on to the faith we have in Christ. But subsequent to that, because God's left us here, God has given us, He's called each and every one of us, to particular tasks and responsibilities. And so we also want to be found faithful in those along the way. Finish well, but also finish each job or task or calling or relationship, whatever those things will be. Finish those well as well. The Scriptures talk a lot about winning and overcoming in life. The common term used throughout the New Testament is the Greek term Nike. Those guys that make those shoes. See, they were saying victory overcoming success winning that's what that word means it's used a couple 
dozen times in the New Testament. It's typically translated, at least in the New American Standard, as overcome. So the thought there is in this competition or this race of life, whatever comes against me, I am going to overcome it. I'm going to win. I'm going to succeed. I'm not going to quit. So for instance, these are on your study sheet. Most of these, I believe, uh, Jesus has overcome the world, John 16, 33. Jesus wasn't subdued. He didn't quit because of the world's opposition. He overcame. He won. He succeeded. He finished the race of life. 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. What we're talking about always gets down to faith. Always gets down to faith. It's not that we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not talking about positive mental attitude. We're not talking about somehow that we are all that. We're really talking at the end of the day about works of faith. That's where all this lands. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses in each of those seven churches, He says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who wins, to the one who finishes the race, I've got this reward for them. A verse that uh, God has uh, really challenged me with over the years is out of Revelation 3, verse 2. Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis and He said, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. See, here's a picture of a church resting on their laurels and the race isn't over. And Jesus says, wake up, get back in the race, you're not done. Some of us will be tempted to quit early. Jesus says, wake up, get back in it. Have you got verses there? 1 Corinthians 15, 58... Uh, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't give up. Labor in hope. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Philippians 3, 12-14, Paul's famous passage where he says, essentially, I, I haven't arrived yet. My race isn't over. So I forget what has gone before. And in case I forget to say this again later, <clears throat> I forget what's gone before already. We're talking about success. We're talking about overcoming. We're talking about finishing well. Some of us sit here this morning and we say, I haven't finished well. I've blown one thing after another. But I would just say your past does not define your future. If you've blown it in the past, that's okay. We're going to get up. We're going to wake up with the church at Sardis. And we're going to go on again. So we can do this. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. Victories or failures. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. Because he says, I'm going to lay hold of the prize. That's my determination. We want to have Paul's kind of determination. And this is what he said at the end of the day. And guys, for all of us here, I hope all of us can say this with Paul. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. So Paul had a horrendously difficult life. Opposition after opposition after opposition. In the church, out of the church, physical, spiritual. But at the end of his life, when he writes his last letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I crossed the finish line. I've kept the faith. That's what all of us want to be able to say at the end of the day. We're going to face tasks in life we're called to, but we'll be tempted to give up on before the job is through. And so the question becomes, how will we respond? When we're facing these temptations to quit early, how are we going to respond? Will we finish our race? We want to set our sights high enough in the arena of winning in life to take the cause of Christ 
a vision of steadfastness in the face of opposition that's appropriate to our participation in the eternal plans of the triune God. Friends, none of us are mere mortals, C.S. Lewis has said. None of us are mere mortals. And none of us live average lives. Right? Think of this for just a second. The plans God has for your life come from the eternal triune God. Those plans are eternal in nature. And when you and I participate in the good works God has called us to, we are cooperating with the eternal triune God in His eternal purposes and plans. There's no mere mortals and there's no average Christian. We are participating with the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal God in His eternal plans. Finishing well is important. Um, Here's a quote from uh, World War II. Right at the beginning, Winston Churchill gave a speech to a boys' school and he said this, and Imagine the little tiny island of England facing the might and the power of Germany. But Churchill had a view of winning and perseverance in the face of opposition that really helped England get through that war against, against crazy odds. He said this, Never, never, in nothing great or small, large or petty, never get in, give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never give in, never give up. So my hope this morning is not only that we introduce the series, but that we're thinking about how this applies to us specifically, particularly today. On your study sheet, you've got a couple places. You've got two lines there, I think. This is meaningless if we just hear something and we don't do anything with it. And again, for some of you, this is now. For some of this, you, this will be later. But as you're thinking through this this morning, think of one or two things that you say, I want to, by God's grace, be able to finish this thing well. Now, for Nehemiah, it was rebuilding a physical wall. It was a huge task. It was unbelievably big. It was a mess of a city. It looked too big to do, but he said, no, we can do this. It was uh, building a wall. In fact, if you look at any commentary on Nehemiah, they're all about building the wall. They're, they're pictures of bricks and walls, etc. You know the truth for us? We're not building walls, most of us, right? Not physical walls. But this still applies. And so the question becomes, what are the walls? What are the tasks? What are the relationships God's called me to that I need to have this kind of mentality on so I can finish well? Now, for some of us, it's as husbands, it's as wives, it's as parents... And that means finishing well in relationships even when we're not happy in those relationships. What does finishing well there look like? For some of us, if we're in school, it might mean finishing a degree or finishing the academic year well, pushing through the finish line at school. For some of us, we're in jobs that we don't want or we don't want to remain in. And for us, it's finishing well as long as that is our place of employment. For this church, I'm just thinking looking forward, it's going to be things like, what does it look like for us to persevere in the faith to present the gospel to the new neighborhood God's introducing us to across town in a couple of weeks? Or what will it look like for us? What kind of obstacles will we face to build a larger building on that site simply adequate for a growing church family? We're not defined by a building. We're glad to move over there into a building that's a little small for us. 
We're going to get to know each other over there on Bell. Armpit to armpit. Uh, but God has things for us to do there. And friends, we're going to face opposition in that. How will we, we respond? Nehemiah is a great, great lesson to be working through at this time. Uh, I want to talk about Nehemiah specifically a little bit. Ben, can you put that uh, one of those images up? Yeah. You can look. Um, let's see if we've got this. So here's Babylon and Susa's right here. You can see down here, sort of lower right of center. And Israel, here's Jerusalem way over here. When the story starts for Nehemiah, he's over here in Susa in what is at this time the Persian Empire. Thanks, Ben. So Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh has comforted. He lived in the 5th century B.C., so he's in the 400 years before Christ's birth. He starts out in the city of Susa. That would put him in modern-day Iran, by the way. If you look at that on a modern map, he's down in Iran. And he was cupbearer, the text tells us, to King Artaxerxes. Now, to put this in some historic perspective, we say, what's a Jew doing in the Persian Empire? And so if we go back a little further than this on your study sheet, remember that God had told Israel, if you disobey my covenant, I'm going to push you out of the land of promise. And he did. And so in 722, the Assyrians destroyed the upper ten, ten tribal kingdom of Israel, took them captive, scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. And then later in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came along and he destroyed the rest of Judah and Jerusalem. And he took them captive, as God said he would, to the Babylonian Empire. Well, a few years later in 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus defeats Babylon. And in 538, Cyrus gives the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they did. And I think it's in 515 B.C. the temple in Jerusalem was completed. The city was not. The walls of the city were not. Jerusalem was still a ruin, but there was an altar and there was a temple there again to worship Yahweh. Skip forward several decades. Ezra returned to Jerusalem about 458 B.C. And Nehemiah followed him around 445 B.C. By the way, if you took your Bible, you guys with, your, with the study sheet, you've got a one page that's the text, that's NASB. You're welcome to read that or read out of your own Bible. But if you take your Bible and you split Old and New Testament, if you hold the Old Testament, Nehemiah is right in the middle. It's between Ezra and Esther. And Ezra and Nehemiah are basically one lengthy story. I'll say this in case you've read on it. There's some difficult chronology to reconcile between those two books. And if you read any commentaries, they'll bring all this up. Uh, but those are really one lengthy story. But that puts us where we take up with Nehemiah this morning. So I'm going to read Nehemiah 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. Almost two chapters. We never, almost never read this much Scripture in a teaching. So this is when you can close your eyes and you can see it all in your imagination. Okay? But this gives us context. So this is Nehemiah 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. So it reads, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, and that Kislev is the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. That puts this opening of the story around November or December. 
And the 20th year is King Artaxerxes' reign, the 20th year of his reign in Susa, which you'd seen on the map. Uh, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. So they've come from Judah through the Fertile Crescent back down to Susa. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Remember, after Nebuchadnezzar, there was a remnant of people left in the land. And then under the rebuilding of the temple, several folks had gone back too. So there's a small population of Jews that had either been there all the time or had returned, Nehemiah says, how's it going for them? And the response is, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. They say basically it's a mess. They're terribly challenged and physically the city is still a wreck and a ruin. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He's acknowledging we weren't faithful to the covenant. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. Grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So compassion before this man is Artaxerxes the king. Chapter 2, And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so this is three to five months later in the spring. This would be March or April. I took up the wine. I'm the king's wine servant. Gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So he's been sad generally, fasting and praying and weeping, but not in the king's presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? You guys here okay? With the rain? Okay. The king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, 
Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them, to the, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah is part of a small official entourage here. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And Ben, do we have the next, do we have the, yeah, okay. So guys, let me, as we read through these, it's a little confusing, but he's going to mention the gates he goes around. Jerusalem has been built up over the centuries and millennia. It started as a very tiny little city and, and little by little valleys get filled in and walls get expanded. And this would have been the walls that Nehemiah was working on. And we know he comes out the valley gate here. And the description is that he's basically working his way around the walled part of the city to come back into the valley gate again. We're really not clear on gate for gate this description that Nehemiah gives us, but we know about what he's saying, where he started and where he ended. So he says, I arose at night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. He doesn't have wagons and heavy draft horses. Nobody has an indication that he's doing anything but coming. He doesn't look like a work party. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate. That would be above the Hinnom Valley there on the south end where they burn their trash. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. There's still rubble everywhere from the destruction. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again. And by the way, they keep calling this the valley gate. If you went to Jerusalem today, there's no valley there. That's all been filled in. Man has filled all that in with rubble to bring that whole valley up level with the rest of the city. But there used to be a valley there, but there's not today. Uh, let's see, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation that we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me, then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So that's the setting for everything that follows afterwards. And Ben, we're good with that, thanks. So what we want to do, that's the setting. And we're talking about finishing the things God gives us, finishing well. Not caving to opposition or the temptations to quit early. Finishing well. Now we know a little bit about Nehemiah. We know the 
times that he faces. Let's go through and pick out. These are seven things you guys might have found more. I've got seven things that are part of who Nehemiah is and how he responds to life. His character and the attitudes of his heart. The first thing I notice is simply this, that Nehemiah loved God and he loved God's things. He loved God and he loved what God loved. So when he hears about the state of things in Jerusalem, which is God's city, and it's the place where God said he would cause his name to dwell, and that the temple is there, but everything else remains a wreck, and the people are hard-pressed and despondent, he is sad. He is sad to tears. He is sad to fasting. He's not pleasing himself by taking meals and praying. See, Nehemiah knew that God's presence on earth depended at some level, if you will, because this was the covenant, on Israel and on Jerusalem and on the temple being the center of worship. And it's hard times there. So when he hears the desperate situation of Jerusalem, he is sad because he loves the things God loves. He loves God and he loves what God loves. Let me ask you, what are you passionate about? And you could ask it this way. What makes you rejoice? What fills you with joy? And what drives you to tears? What fills you to joy? And what drives you to tears? What are those things? Those are likely the things that we are passionate about. Now guys, we give lip service to we love God. But I don't think most of us love God anyway, anywhere close to what we say we do. And I say that because I don't think the church responds to what God loves and what God hates. I think it's why we live in a mediocre time in this, the state of the church is today. Because we don't love God and we don't love what God loves. Other things displace God. That wasn't the case for Nehemiah. Look at your calendar and look at your checkbook and you know what your priorities in life are. You're spending your time and your money on your priorities. That's undeniable. We do what we value. What do we value? See, Nehemiah valued God and God's things. And remember, Nehemiah for himself, he has a pretty cushy life. He lives in the palace. Life is easy. Life is good. All he wants to eat. Nice, comfortable settings. But what he's weeping about is the status of God's city, God's temple, God's people. Love is the greatest motivator of all. And if our heart is set on God and God's things, if we love Him above all else, we'll finish the course He set us on no matter the difficulty. There's no greater motivator than love. Fear will get us so far down the road. Other things can be helpful. Love is the motivator that will take you across the finish line. The second thing I note about Nehemiah is his humility. This is chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, related to his prayer. Listen again to what it says. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly. See, Nehemiah takes humbly on himself sins which I am confident he had not personally engaged in. Nehemiah is just like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. These were guys who lived above reproach. But what they do is they humbly identify with the failings of the group of which they are a part. They don't say, they have sinned and I'm okay, Lord. They say, we have sinned. 
Their humility allows them to identify with the covenant group of which they're a part. Now see, a proud spirit leaves us saying, they've sinned, but not me. A proud spirit allows me to keep myself separate in my own emotions and in my own mind from the rest of the group I'm a part of. That could be my family. It could be the local church. It's for sure for us the universal church. But see, humility allows us to plug in with everybody else. You know, Scripture says God's opposed to the proud, but He'll give grace to the humble. And Nehemiah has humility in spades. He didn't see himself as the exception, but he identified humbly with the rest of the covenant nation. Pride leads us to exempt ourselves from culpability of the church. Humility enables us to see ourselves in the group and to confess the group's sin as our own for God's glory and the rest of the church or the family. Guys, if we all have a confident heart to push on, if we have a humble heart. So you're starting to see Nehemiah's attitudes of heart, his character. He loves God and God's things. He's humble. The third thing I love about Nehemiah is that he prayed... So he fasted and prayed. He's serious. He fasted and he prayed. And he not only prayed, but he prayed God's will and God's word. So you see this again there in chapter 1, verse 5. I beseech you, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Now listen, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. How did Nehemiah know that God keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who keep his commandments? How did he know that? Because God had said it. And God had said it in Exodus 20, verse 6, and Exodus 34, verse 6. Do you think Nehemiah read his Bible? I think he read his Bible. It's one thing to pray. Friends, when we're desperate, we all pray. God help me. I'm going down. Many times Christians wonder, why do my prayers seem so fruitless? I pray about all these things and God doesn't answer my prayer. And I say, are you praying God's will and God's word? Guys, we can pray all kinds of prayers that God will answer because He's told us what His will and His Word is. When we say we pray in Jesus' name, that doesn't mean God I want in Jesus' name. God, give me this in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name means we pray God's will and God's Word. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. You go down a little further there in chapter 1, verse 8. Nehemiah says, Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses. Does Nehemiah think God can forget? Lord, would you remember? Do you remember, Lord, that one time you said way back, do you remember that? That's not what he's saying, is it? Lord, you said something. You made a promise. And Lord, I'm bringing up that promise you made way back in the day to Moses on the mountain, and I'm asking you to cash this check. This check has your name on it. So when he says, remember your servant Moses... He's referring to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 30. When God said, if you're faithless, I'm going to banish you. But if you'll turn back, I will bring you back. It won't matter how far away you are. The furthest, remotest corner of the heavens, I'll bring you back when you return to me. And so Nehemiah is saying, Lord, you've said this, and I want to cash this check. That's what I'm praying Nehemiah prayed, but he prayed God's will and God's word. The heart that pleads a cause based on God's character and word has a confidence that can't be found any other place. 
I know God wants to do something. God's committed himself to it, a God who cannot lie. When I pray God's word, I am on solid, rock-solid ground. The fourth thing I notice is diligence. Diligence. Uh, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. Everyone who's hasty comes surely to poverty. If you caught in this story, there's about five months between the time Nehemiah prays and then he speaks to the king. About five months. What was he during, during, doing during that time? One thing we know he's praying, right? But the other thing is he was preparing himself for the opportunity to speak to the team. He was diligent. So when he engages the king and the king says, hey, I know you're sad about something, what's the deal? He doesn't say in the moment, oh gosh, I don't know on the spur of the moment, why don't you do this, king? Or why don't you think about this? No, no, no. He is prepared for the king's question. He has been making his plans. And so when the king says, what do you want? He says, send me to Jerusalem. I've thought about it. I've weighed the cost. This is what I want to do. Send me to Jerusalem. And then he says, and by the way, would you give me some letters to the governors beyond the river so they don't oppose me, so they know I'm part of your official contingency? And by the way, would you send me with some of your officials? I've got the officials from the king. I've got the king's letters. I'm going through. Nobody's going to oppose me. And by the way, would you give me another letter to the guy that's going to give, give me the timber for the gates and the rebuilding of the city walls? See, he was diligent. When nothing seemed to be going on, he was laying his plans. He was prepared. So when the opportunity came, he's not spinning his wheels. He's not thinking this up in the moment. He is laying out the prepared plans. He was diligent to prepare ahead of time. A diligent, prepared heart is a confident heart. This, this next one, number five on your study sheet, is really important. And guys, this one, this snags tons of us. And it's courage. Now did you notice in chapter two, when the king says it's sadness of heart, Nehemiah, the text says, and he wrote this for himself. This is first person. He says, I was very much afraid. <laughs> I was very much afraid. We need to realize how afraid that is. Why, why is he afraid? Uh, for a couple reasons, right? He's like Esther in the story of Esther. Esther comes unbidden to the king who can have her executed for that insult, Right? When Nehemiah speaks up, he knows, though this king may value me, though I'm, I'm close to him physically and he knows me well, maybe he likes me, uh, this king may choose to remove my head based on what I am about to say. Why were the walls of Jerusalem and the city still unbuilt at this point? If you read Ezra 4, you find out. Because this king stopped the rebuilding. So put that in perspective. The guy who on a whim can lift my head off my shoulders, I'm telling him, by the way, you blew it earlier when you stopped the rebuilding of my God city and my ancestor's city. That city lies in waste and ruins because of your edict. This took some guts. He knew this could be my life right here. And he said, I'm going through anyway. I'm good to go. I'm prayed up. I know what I need. I know what I want. And this is the thing on courage, guys. Nehemiah feared God more than this human king, and the fear of God will always give us courage adequate to endure obstacles in the way. Listen, if we fear other people, or we fear other people's versions of failure or success, 
If we fear anyone or anything more than we fear and revere God, we will find ourselves at some point in life cowards. It wasn't that Nehemiah wasn't afraid. He says, I was very afraid. Will we be fearful? Absolutely. But it comes down to this, who and what do you fear most? Guys, at the end of the day, God is the absolute standard of fear and love. And if we fear God adequately, we won't fear anyone else inappropriately, even to the laying down of our lives as martyrs. We can do that too. I need to close. Uh, Respect for authority. I'll let you guys read these last two on your own. And inclusiveness. Uh, Nehemiah did everything above board. Everything he did was transparent. He did everything in following through transparently under the authorities he knew God had instituted. And guys, don't kid yourself. If you're breaking laws, if you're shading the truth and you're calling it God's will, it's not. It's not. Nehemiah submitted to the authorities of God and he included everyone. He didn't come in as a Lone Ranger Superman hero. He said collectively, let us build. He was not like politicians today saying, let me tell you the things I'm going to do for you. He said, guys, we're in a pickle. But God's big enough to help us and let us arise and build. It wasn't all about him. There's a verse on the bottom of your study sheet, Hebrews 12, 11 and 12. Remember to frame everything in this context. What we're really talking about doing when we talk about finishing the race of life well or completing successfully the tasks and the calls, the relationships God's entrusted, we're talking about following Jesus Christ in his humble, submissive role to the Father's goodwill and doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? We're not working something up on our own. We're simply following our leader. We're following Christ just as He endured the pain and the shame of the cross. We're going to endure as He did so that we can finish the race of life well as He did too, okay? That's where we're heading. Lord, we love You, and Lord, we joyfully, gladly submit to Your rule in our life. Lord, we confess that we are nothing apart from You. Lord, we are creatures that You have chosen to set Your love on to redeem through the precious atoning blood and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And Father, would You help us turn to You hearts of worship, fearful, appropriate reverence, Lord, and adoring worship as well. Father, would You help our lives to be a pleasing aroma to You. Help us to finish all things well. In Jesus' name, Amen.